Hello and welcome to Super Excited with Stefan Roost. I'm Mike, the facilitator of this podcast. In this episode, Stefan talks to Paul Puey. Paul Puey is the CEO and co-founder of Edge Wallet. He's been in the wallet app space for nearly a decade, and his edge is considered by many to be an industry standard. His background is in electrical engineering and computer science, low-level 3D graphics engineering, and development of custom web CMS systems. His professional life includes stints at NVIDIA and Chromatic Research. In this episode, Stefan and Paul discuss how disruption is a key motivator, transparency's significance, skin-in-the-game evangelists, and the Bitcoin standard. Enjoy this episode. Hey, everybody, we're back and super excited to be here again with a, another true OG in the industry, um, Paul, Paul from Edge Wallet, who's been building non-custodial wallets for quite a time, quite a time now and, and really been at it. Right. Um, maybe, Paul, share a bit of background on yourself, how you got into crypto and um, yeah. Maybe just share that with the audience. Be good, yeah. Good so uh, thanks for considering me an OG. I still to this day don't feel like I am because I still remember getting involved. I feel like an OG is the person that didn't have anyone else to learn from, really. You know, you yeah. get involved, there's no podcasts and whatnot. Um, and I was happy to be able to say that, you know, when I got involved in 2013 is when I discovered Bitcoin, that I was able to lean on at least one podcast. <laughs> so I, mean, I guess that's OG enough. The fact that there was literally one podcast in all of the industry, which at the time which was just Bitcoin. Podcast like, that? Which one was uh, that? Let's talk Bitcoin with Andreas Antonopoulos, Stephanie Murphy. Oh, yeah, yeah, um, yeah, yeah. You know, yeah. Like, like, you know, and so I, I leaned a lot on the, on the, the somewhat sometimes ramblings, but mostly very, very insightful educational um, words of uh, Andreas. Andreas. So I'm, I'm actually I kind of miss him being more involved in some of the in-person events that he used to travel to, and I know he's been doing a lot of um, kind of virtual. Uh, yeah. courses and instructional courses, you know, still very, very valuable, but admittedly, I right. kind of miss seeing him uh, on a regular basis at the events. But uh, yeah, that's when I got involved in 2013, um, did believe very strongly in the self-custody space, and, you know, immediately started using self-custody wallets, you know, use some exchanges for buying at the time, just buying, yeah. <laughs> you know, what, yeah. what do I need to sell any of the Bitcoin? Um, but felt that self-custody was so horribly more difficult than custodial, that there was an opportunity there. There was an opportunity to actually simplify self-custody. And that's when, you know, got only within what, seven, eight months after I discovered Bitcoin, decided to actually create a company and a product focused on making self-custody much, much easier for people and easier defined as familiar, right? Because you can make something that you think is easy, but for another person, if it's unfamiliar, that could actually be the thing that's alienating. Um, yeah. It's really about familiarity. And I, I talk about familiarity as being an important thing if you look at credit cards. So um, people are, would think that paying with Bitcoin is harder because it's unfamiliar. Imagine if you went in reverse and we got used to paying in Bitcoin, scan a QR code, spend, scan a QR code, spend. And yeah. then someone said, now you have to take a physical card, slide it through this machine, have it print out these two copies of, of paper that you then have to sign one of them. And someone would say, that's that's kind of harder, right? But we're so used to that today that what you're accustomed yeah. to helps define ease, even if it's yeah. physically harder, it's familiar. But anyway, so that, that's kind of the background. Um, that's when I started building at the time, the company called Airbits and the product called Airbits, which is still who we are today. It's the same company, but it's just a rebrand. It's a refocus of what we do today versus what we originally did back in 2014, 2015, um, with a focus now on 
multiple different cryptocurrencies, buying, selling, trading, and then you know decentralized financial services. That's what we do yeah. today. Interesting. And then getting into product, why building a product? You had some technical background, right? I mean, you worked in the tech industry, you studied technology. Yeah. And so how, how were you a product engineer before, a product manager before, or were you a developer before? How did you get into why build? Why build? So I was a developer yeah. before. I, I, I worked for a little bit less than a decade for NVIDIA, for which yeah. I'm sure people in the mining world are familiar with the name and gaming. Gaming and mining, they're almost yeah. a household name. Um, uh, so I was a developer. I wouldn't call myself a product manager at that time, but I did see a lot of products come across my plate. Uh, yeah. And then actually, it's because I left tech and went into small business that I started to appreciate the technology products that I used yeah. or not appreciate or really want changes in them. And I started looking at ways of building a product that people would touch and use and improve on what existed today. And it was through being a user that was not a developer that I still really, that, that's when I really, really started wanting to build something in specifically this industry. Um, yeah. I thought about and had opportunities in other industries, but nothing had me feeling as passionate and driven as Bitcoin. Like I felt like there was a purpose. This was good. This was going to go down in the history books as being one of the most revolutionary industries um, over the past several hundred years. And I just wanted to be a part of that. Like I'm sure you do as well. Yeah. And I think, you know, you look back, right, and, and Bitcoin came around in 2009 and where we're at today, mm -hmm. Jerome Powell is now commenting, uh, commenting on in his statements that, you know, Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies is and are influencing his policy making. Right. And so over yeah, a period of 12 years, it's now, yeah, for better or worse. Right. <laughs> um, but, yeah. but still, it's having an influence, right? It's definitely changing the game, right? Slowly and, and for better or for worse. Ultimately, it's a threat to where they're at uh, from a monopolistic yep. position to all of a sudden being, uh, oh, there's an alternative currency out there. Yep. And that's what got me super excited. I was yeah. very excited about just generally disruptive technologies um, and also just what I consider to be contrarian thinking from yep. what is the norm of the past several hundred years. Like I've always yep. like tried to open my mind to like, oh, this is how we've just been doing it for X number of years, decades, millennium. But is there a new alternate way of thinking? Because if you look yep. back at history, those are the most disruptive, the ones that completely change the, the mindset. And by doing that, you also get the most amount of friction from the existing you know, population. That's yep. normal because most people don't like abrupt amount of change. You get into the groove and you get used to something and change is, is difficult. And it's especially difficult in money because you've got a lot of discomfort in changing money because you have a lot of people that then lose it. Um, but that's where, admittedly, a lot of the excitement comes into play um, because I, before getting into Bitcoin, I definitely had like opinions of uh, distrust in a lot of the establishment, not yeah. just in money, but in other industries, whether it be kind of health, wellness, food industry. Yeah. Um, and I found that when I got into the Bitcoin space, a lot of those people kind of had the similar emotions and feelings and backgrounds. I'm like, wow, I was very surrounded by like-minded people. And that's why I've been in this space for, for so long now. It's, it's not just something that I want to do to change the world, but I'm surrounded by a lot of sharp, intelligent, like-minded. Obviously, the space has grown and that, you know, some of the like-minded start becoming a smaller and smaller percentage, but they're still there. And I still appreciate their, uh, their existence within this industry. Yeah, and I suppose that's always the thing, right? So when an industry grows, it's sort of more a revolutionary a revolution or a movement that really mm -hmm. drives the initial momentum 
and then it sort of shifts as more participants engage into the community. It, it sort of dilutes that uh, original. Core mission, original idea or original momentum. And yep. so much to the extent that today, you know, there are fractions like they were before, though, you know, even we had different types of fractions. But now the fractions are more we have to be more regulated or we have to be more independent and we have to be more non-custodial. Um, and I know you have a lot of opinions around that, um, um, particularly oh, yeah. with DeFi and TradFi, right? I mean, it's like yeah, they're, yeah. they're two different worlds. And in this last, I mean, contagion, as we call it, right? I mean, yeah, we oh saw God. this DeFi, these central finance entities that actually had custodians, were regulated, were licensed, were managed by licensed individuals. Um, all of a sudden, they're the ones that got corrupted by this whole ecosystem, did bad risk management, etc. Right, and so All DeFi, its full time though, stood solid. Right, it held its ground. Right. The, the policies stuck to it. You know, the protocols were holding their 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 governance. They were sticking to yeah, their. They governance. followed its rules. Yep. Yeah. So I'm going to give. Um, I, I'm probably going to get hated for this, but I'm going to give a little bit of flack to DeFi, even though I'm absolutely a big fan of it. Yeah. Is that Yes, a lot of the CFI institutions mismanaged risk. Yeah. But one of the biggest risks that they mismanaged was in a DeFi protocol, right? In a way, you can kind of consider UST yeah. um, a DeFi protocol. However, if you think about it, the entire protocol of UST was completely outlined in open source code. Totally. And so you could know exactly the risks. Yeah. You knew exactly the risk you were getting into, and you know the reward potential by getting into UST, Luna, and all of that. And for CFI institutions to put and pour a tremendous amount of money in, in that protocol was entirely their mismanaged choice. It's a high risk at the time, pretty high return opportunity, but that's their choice to, to, to put funds there. The protocol as it is operated as it was intended, right? And if people pulled a lot of money out, that was a risk that uh, UST would collapse. Every stable coin has a threshold by which if money is pulled out, it can be, it can collapse. And it, it simply did happen for UST. Why did it happen? Many different reasons. And there was, you know, a lot of theory that there could have been some inside um, man, uh, malicious intent behind yeah. it, manipulated intent, but the protocol still stood and operated as, as intended. So this can happen to other stable coin protocols, but then they, at least there's this transparency where you know what risk you're getting into. Now in the CFI world, it's all black box who knows what's happening to your money and that's kind of the the part that we're trying to avoid with DeFi in general so um you're right the contagion completely imploded well, gosh now probably half a dozen different yeah. companies and the more important thing is it didn't implode just the companies it imploded the users and i think that's the piece that people need to realize that when you put your money into these services you're putting money you're like an investor in the company you're actually um, and I think the actual fine print is that you are giving a loan to the company. That's effectively what you're doing. You're giving a loan. And as a loan, you know, uh, you're a creditor and that loan might not get paid back. And it's effectively what happened with these companies that effectively took user funds and would, weren't able to pay them back. Oh, so the T's and C's stipulate you're giving me a loan and I'm taking that loan and, and, and I'm putting that to use accordingly. And interesting. Yeah. 
and I'll pay you back some of those that money. Just like if you, you know, if a bank lent you, you're supposed to pay back that money and pay it back with interest. And the bank effectively makes makes revenue on on that interest. It's the same way you give you're giving a BlockFi or Celsius money as as a loan, and they're going to pay you back hopefully with interest. But that is not guaranteed to actually come back to you. Um, And so there's some uh, not equivalent risks, but parallel risks in DeFi in the sense that the protocol might not work as intended, that there could be a bug in the protocol that people didn't foresee. So there's technical risks in DeFi. Um, and those are probably the biggest the biggest risks there. Is it, It's not that you're worried a protocol will mismanage funds or make bad decisions, because you, know, you know what decisions are made and most of those decisions are very simple. Yeah. Um, it's the simple that it's the simple fact that, well, what we code is supposed to be the decision-making engine might not be what we intended to code. And so that's that risk. And that has happened in DeFi, right? There has been money lost in DeFi. Yeah. However, if you look at the two, the two risks, which one do we think can improve over time versus which one do we think is just simply going to get worse over time or not really improve? And fundamentally, um, time has shown that uh, large institutions holding other people's money will tend to corrupt over time. Yeah. All right. Corrupt, mismanage lose people's funds. That's happened, you know, decades over and decades over and over, over again, right? yeah. over and over again. Yeah. Um, whereas technology tends to stabilize over time, yeah. especially when it's similar technology to what was built in the past. Obviously yeah. you come up with some whiz bang new thing, it's going to have to stabilize, yeah. but a money market, which is a vast majority of DeFi protocols, some money going in, money getting borrowed, money being used and whatnot is relatively straightforward. And those protocols will stabilize over time. So I put my bet on DeFi. Like fundamentally, while there's risk today, I feel like that risk is going down over time and it's held its ground. Like you said, in this past contagion, DeFi, generally speaking, held its ground. I mean, we have a statement, not your coins, not your money, right? I mean, that, that's always oh, yeah, been all the time. sort of, and, and so that's what Edge Wallet's really built, right? I control my coins, my keys uh, through the wallet, and that allows me then to interact yeah. with the different, the different um, coins that Protocols, are out there. coins, tokens. It. Exactly. And exactly. So, and so like we, we could go out of business like a block fire Celsius and everyone would yeah. still have their money. Yeah. That's the important thing to note is that we can't mismanage users funds. We might mismanage our own. That, that's entirely feasible. Like most companies, you have to figure out where you want to allocate your, your, your resources, but it won't lose users funds due to our decisions and what we do with our own money. That's the key, the key takeaway. Yeah, I mean, you're basically a window into your into a user's assets that are locked into the blockchain, right? You're providing an interface into that um, for users to then interact with the different protocols. Exactly. That is the key yeah. thing is that if you think about it, um, blockchains are kind of like banks, but, you yeah. know, where it's multiple banks holding the same ledger of transactions. And what Edge is, is effectively, but it's just a UI interface to those, to those banks, which are the yeah. nodes, which are the networks. Um, much like a browser is how you access your, um, your online banking account. We're kind of the browser in a yeah. way, right? So it's a loose analogy, but definitely an analogy that's worth understanding because it's, it's, it's the technology you're accessing. It's the interface technology to access the actual backend services that you're interested in. Yeah, it's a bit like, yeah, I think that analogy is not bad, right? Where, where actually the, the blockchain is the bank and mm-hmm. all the nodes in the blockchain are the branches and they're all yeah. maintaining them independently, the ledger, right? Um, so they all have uh, access to that information. 
One of the things though you brought in, I want to come back to that, was where you talk about, you know, the black box, right? And, and you know, blockchain and non-custodial services are very transparent, right? So mm-hmm. everybody can see all the transactions on there. They've all got an explorer and a wallet address. You can sort of track sort of the amount in a wallet address and you can track the movements associated with the wallet address. How do you see that sort of evolving and that difference sort of between that transparency, the openness uh, versus the sort of Kleinstein closed room decision making in the TradFi world? Got it. So I'll make yeah. a, uh, I'll draw a line between two kinds of transparency versus black box op- opacity or opaqueness, I guess you could say, yeah. is one is what is the system doing with your money? Yeah. All right. Like when you go and send a transaction um, or you send a transaction to a DeFi protocol or you send it to a multi-sig address, what are the rules by which that money can move? Right. That is fully transparent in blockchains, Yeah. even in private blockchains, ones where you can't see the money actually move, but you can at least see the rules by which they move. So yeah. it's the rules by which money can move versus being able to actually see the money move. Let's kind of like draw, can we draw that line in the sand? That kind yeah, of like is a good sure, distinction. Sure, sure. And yeah. so with, uh, with CFI and um, traditional banks, traditional financial services is you don't really know the rules by which that money can move. They tell you what they roughly will say are the rules like, oh, you need to come to us and log in and that's when the money can move. But then you have this huge legal contract that is very ambiguous that in the end of the day says they can move your money for whatever reason. Right. That, that's that, that's the black box. You don't know the, all those other ways that the money could move. Now, can you actually see the money move? Like, is it transparent when that when the money moves? Admittedly, CFI, except for to the government, is relatively opaque. Yeah. Like it's actually in many ways more private than blockchains, except for when you think about privacy to governments, because governments can talk to any financial service and say, hey, we want to see all the transactions that this specific person uh, is making, how much are they, who are they sending money to. So CFI, TradFi are opaque to us, but very transparent to the government and yeah. to themselves. In the contrast, blockchains are transparent to everybody, right? Um, but at the same time, don't immediately have names associated no. with that transparency. You see numbers, you see you know, wallet addresses and whatnot, you don't see. Um, but you don't see names. But if you can associate a name, then you see all the transactions in that address to a certain name. Um, however, I am very, very excited about private blockchains. Um, and it's one of the things that has anchored a lot of our effort here at Edge. We put probably more than the average you know, self-custody app wallet, whatever you want to call it, self-custody app wallet effort, amount of effort into supporting privacy-focused blockchains where you still know the rules by which money will move because it's still yeah. open source. You can look at the source code. Um, you know that... If you sign a transaction, uh, that money will move. If you can't, if you don't have a signature, you don't have the private key, the money won't move. Yeah. Um, but you don't see publicly where that money is going. You don't know how much it's moving, where it's coming from. Um, that I'm very excited about. We were the first app um, that supported Monero and any other asset to mar- for our first multi-asset app to support Monero back as early as 2018, I believe, when Monero had very, very little support at that time, um, where I think only like the second multi-asset app to support Zcash in full privacy mode. Yeah. Um, as a matter of fact, we only support Zcash in full privacy mode. We don't let people, you know, receive um, or receive the transparent addresses inside of the app because that compromises your privacy. Yeah. Um, 
And we're looking at several other privacy coins for, for implementation inside of the app. And they're the hardest assets to support by and large, no question about it. There is no asset we've ever had to add support for that's, that's harder than either one of those two. Um, so, but we're committed. We feel like that is an important piece of the puzzle. And we hope that that level of privacy starts creeping into some of the more popular chains, such as Bitcoin, Ethereum, you know, Bitcoin Cash, you name it, Dash. Um, I know there's some efforts, but generally speaking, the efforts have been very poorly adopted, unfortunately. Yeah. I mean, so a lot of the efforts have gone into mixing, right? And, and the mixing protocols. Yeah. But just before I go down that path, I just wanted to sort of, we talked, Monero and Zcash are sort of the oldest sort of privacy coins out there, right? Do you see yeah. any newer coins that are coming up that are also trying to build out privacy capabilities, really deep entrenched as as good as Monero is really building that out. What I'm seeing are coins that are either forks of one of those two. Okay. Right? So Pirate Chain's yep. really growing in popularity yep. and it's a fork of Zcash yep. with pretty much all the technology that the ECC team, Electric Coin Company, had built with Zcash, but removing a lot of the criticisms that have been imparted on Zcash. And I'll, you know, I love the guys over at Zcash. If you're listening, yep. you know, I still love what you guys are up to. I love the efforts, but you know, criticisms do what criticisms do. Throw them at us as well if you need to. But with Zcash, there was the trusted setup. Yeah. All right. That is getting eliminated with the most recent uh, hard fork of Zcash to support or Orchid. But the original trusted setup was a criticism. But more than that is that there's a slice of the mining rewards that go to a company, that go to the electric coin company, yeah. um, which I think then also delegates some to the, uh, the foundation. So yeah. a lot of people don't like that. They, you know, I mean, I don't. I think it's neither here nor there. But if yeah. you're if you're not a fan of a decentralized protocol paying a centralized company, yeah. then you might want to do something different. And that's where Pirate Chain came in. They ripped out um, the the mining reward going to the ECC, and as well, they ripped out pub, um, publicly visible uh, transparent addresses. So there's no way to do a transaction on Pirate Chain other than through these private stealth addresses. And that is another criticism. It's a criticism I've laid onto Zcash as well, which is why Monero has so much more adoption is that there's no way to do a non-private transaction. All transactions are private by default. Private, private. Private, privacy by default is one thing I'm a big fan of. And I think exactly. optional privacy, um, it's not as bad as no privacy, but it loses, it's like a 10x loss. As yeah. soon as privacy becomes optional, uh, you ever use Telegram? Still, yeah, of course. I'm pretty yeah. sure you have, right? But have you yeah. used Signal? I think we've yeah. tried Posture on Signal yeah. before. Yeah, so Signal is a privacy by default. Yeah. Telegram is an optional privacy, and a lot of people got into Telegram in its early days, like 2014, 15. I got into it because crypto people introduced me to it. Okay. They got into it because they for its privacy. Yeah. Ironically, the privacy is optional and also kind of difficult to use. You have to jump through hoops to use it. And so people just end up using Telegram in a non-private mode. So it was almost like a bait and switch. Hey, there's this Telegram thing can let you do this great privacy, blah, blah, blah. But no one used it because it was hard. Um, and I think that's the challenge that Zcash has right now is that so much of the ecosystem that's adopted Zcash, especially the exchanges, they don't want to lose those exchanges. There's, you know, as a, as, a co as a company, ECC focused on adoption, it's fair that you want to get exchange support. But when you make mandatory privacy, you'll likely lose some of that exchange support. Um, but that's, a, I'm hoping, a direction they want to go to. Yeah. You know, privacy by default. Yeah, no. But I mean, a lot of governments have, have really clamped down on this whole privacy element, right? I mean, not only because it's a threat to, to their 
their existence and, and it's another cryptocurrency, but it's AML and, and there's a lot of money laundering going yeah. on through these um, coins, so much so that they've banned it on exchanges in certain jurisdictions. And it's been mainly yeah. because if I want to do business with the US, the US government has banned it, I can't engage in that, right? And so mm-hmm. what, I mean, how do you see that evolving? And what, what's your argument? I mean, argument there around that. How do you how do you sort of justify to users that this is a reason why we need to keep privacy going? So I think less about the reason to keep privacy going, but I'm going to take a page and give credit to, to, to Zuko Wilcox from ECC Zcash community and yep. uh, one of the founders. Um, he gave a presentation a few years ago on the history of the internet and internet encryption. Okay. And realize when encryption first came out, the government was wholeheartedly against it. Yeah. Right? They um, they banned export of software that allowed encryption that could, they could not break. You know, like your standard SSL encryption, you know, the little green lock icon you get yeah. in your browser. Um, it was banned to export a browser out of the U.S. that um, could do that level of encryption. Uh, and then people started using the internet for not just downloading, you know, porn movies and um, surfing cat pictures and all the stuff that the government thought what the internet was for. You're like, oh, that's just for people doing this, you know, random toy stuff. And now it's people wanted to access their DMV records. They wanted to actually look at their loan, bank history, actually issue wire transactions. Their health records. Um, Health records, uh, put credit card information on the internet. And they realized it was a huge risk for people to be doing that without unbreakable encryption. And so they fully flipped their opinion and went from, we're trying to ban this and clamp it down and prevent people from using it to, we're going to mandate it. So the government now today mandates that any financial service company use SSL encryption for any communication with their end users. Same thing with any government website. So once the government starts using the tool, they will want the privacy. (laughs) (laughs) Right? That's really it. That's really it. And so I look at it this way. How many, like, what what year did you get into Bitcoin, Stefan? 2012, I bought my first Bitcoin. Damn. God, I wish I got 2012. Good for you. Um, How many many, uh, politicians mentioned the word Bitcoin in 2012? Pretty much none. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, exactly. None, right? And so I can't count how many have mentioned it today. Right. Think about it. I, I, I can't count at least one hand. There's, I don't Everybody know all off the top of my head. In some, some way. In yeah. In some way, shape or form. Many are against it. What they're talking about. But no. If they don't know what they're talking about, they hate it. But there's, I can't count in one hand how many are for it. Yeah. Right. There's just, there's more for it than I can, 10x, if not 50x more than back when you got involved in 2012. Yeah. And that's yeah. only going to amplify every year. Yeah. Yeah. And as those people get involved and start to promote the use of it, they'll realize, God, the transparency and the privacy sucks. Like, I kind of would like something better, both for myself and then also for whatever departments they're working with. Like, Because that financial privacy is important to the government. The government mm-hmm. wants to know everything you're doing, but they want to keep everything that they do private. That's kind of, <laughs> right? It's all for me, none, none for you. Exactly. However, in order for, me, in order for me to get the privacy, me being if I'm the government or I'm a government official, I have to have the tools Yep. to have that financial privacy. Right. And if crypto starts getting used, then the tool for financial privacy, guess what? Are the privacy protocols, the mixers, the privacy coins? And then it starts to become, well, 
shoot, how can we then ban it across the you know our our end users, which are the citizens, but then use it for ourselves because then it just it's not as useful of a protocol if yeah. we can only use it for ourselves. So that's kind of the prediction, right? You know, I, I don't feel like to your listeners we we need to kind of uh, define the value of of privacy, but show how we have a path forward for it actually getting adopted and being accepted and not being banned and clamped down by every government in the world. It's because governments people forget. They think this big bad government's this building, you know, with uh, with pillars in front of it, with made of concrete. It's hundred years old. No, government is people. People forget that government is actually made of people, and people change over generation over generation, and they start wanting different things. And one of those things that they're going to start wanting is, is crypto and yeah. crypto with privacy. So it'll get it'll get there, and we'll get the, we'll get it as well. Yeah, that's actually really interesting, right? Because how does that then play out in the CBDC roles, right? Will the CBDC <laughs> be publicly available, right? And if they're publicly available, does that mean every department and every treasury will have a wallet address, which will, they will ultimately have to publicize and show what the funds yeah. are, what the fund movements are in there? No? Yeah, CBDC <laughs> is nothing more than a... Is a oh, for sure. A... Now, the clear distinction of a CBDC is that it is a government-level end-user bank account. Yep. And what, what people need to distinguish is they realize that you, no one in a country, no individual, no citizen has a bank account with the central bank. Yep. Like The central bank doesn't issue bank accounts. They leave it to the private banks to do that. Um, a CBDC is just a bank account with the central bank. Yeah. So in essence, I think the biggest threat, like who is threatened by CBDC is in crypto. It's actually the private banks. Yeah. Because if I can transfer money between me, my account and your account, Stephen, then what do we need the private banks for? Maybe the financial no, services, like you know, yeah. maybe they're the ones that give out loans and whatnot. But from the viewpoint of money transfer, if you've got an account over in Austin with some Austin credit union, yeah. and maybe I've got like a Wells Fargo account, it's a bit of a pain in the ass for me to pay you. Right, like we may have to go through another third party that sits on top of the banks, like a PayPal right. and whatnot. But if we both have CBDC bank accounts, then I can easily send you funds. Yep. Um, and then because there's not a delay of multiple centralized parties, the fraud risk goes down as well. Right? Fraud's much higher when you're when you're dealing with two parties that don't trust each other, such as yep. Wells Fargo yep. and Bank of America. And the beauty of that too is, if the fraud risk goes down, guess what else you can do more easily? <laughs> you can buy crypto. <laughs> Yeah, that's the beauty. Yeah. I mean, in a way, I do like the fact that if the governments want to do CBDC, perfect, do that. Make sure it's available and transparent, mm -hmm. yet provide an alternative, right? So it just verifies that crypto should be around. We should have mm -hmm. alter, alternate coins available. Um, they will then try and regulate all the other coins according to to give the CBDCs a competitive advantage in some form or fashion. Yeah, um, they for sure. Yeah. yeah, they for sure will. And I think the once again, the key is people make up the government. And yep. I think as the government changes and people more forward thinking start yep. entering positions of power, they realize that the CBDCs don't empower people any more than they were previously empowered other than to bypass the private banks. Right? So you're able to bypass private banks to a degree. But are you going to be able to do things you couldn't do before? So if a private bank is going to restrict your ability to move money, well, the government will do the same. Like, I don't imagine that, oh, because it's the government, I can move money more freely, more easily to more jurisdictions than I could with a private bank. No, your restrictions are just the same. It just might be easier for me to go from 
what would normally have been Wells Fargo Bank of America. Now I just go, you know, one point. Jerome Powell to Jerome Powell Bank. Or, you know, <laughs> it's, it's easy. So that I think is the fundamental benefit, which is to me incremental com- yeah. uh, as opposed to fully disruptive with more truly decentralized, censorship resistant, globally accessible crypto and Bitcoin. Yeah. Yeah, and especially when these the people, they're professional politicians today, right? They don't necessarily, they have their own careers at mind versus the benefit of the overall prosperity of a nation or an economy itself, yeah. right? Um, which exactly. You guys are trying to keep their job. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, trying to keep their job in a the the voting pool. Yeah, of course. <laughs> and, and they're yeah. only interested in the voting pool around voting time, right? And then after, afterwards, they <laughs> know, true. I don't need to fulfill those promises and be accountable yeah. for I got, what, I, what I promised. I got, I got three years to chill, do what I want. And then I got one year to actually, you know, get Go some votes. Work it. Yeah, yeah. Um, absolutely. You know, but the other thing I think is, is interesting to me is the amount of funding and government allocation towards funds versus actually saying oh, why don't we put that money towards innovation and try to allow an, a prosperity associated with that innovation and, and tackle the specific issues and go after a specific issue or bad actors versus everybody's a bad actor and we have to block everything down, we have to regulate everything and we're going to put all this money behind the enforcement of these regulations versus... Um, yeah, I, you know, one example is in the Inflation Reduction Act, they actually put in there, I think, 80 billion that goes towards the IRS and another 80,000 headcount to enable the IRS to actually go and implement and use that 80 billion, right? And so with 80 billion dollars, I could build a whole new tax code and make it so easy for people to supply and submit tax information in a nice web interface using a bit of AI yeah. to find anomaly, etc. I mean, what could you do with that money and how much jobs would you be creating Jeez. after that, right? And, and streamlining a lot of the propositions and making sure that anybody can use it versus you know, just Ernst and Young and Price Waterhouse and Coopers and all the other fifty thousand accountants that are employed to submit yours, mine, and everybody else's tax forms. I'm blown away. I'm wondering if they'll even be able to. If you think about government spend, yeah, I don't know that government ever thinks about ROI on their spend. No. And you can just print more money. But if you think of the ROI, do they expect to collect eighty billion dollars more in taxes by oh, yeah. have, having hired? $80 billion worth of, of people to do the collection. I don't know that they'll actually accomplish that goal of collecting more money in, in taxes because you're right. Some of the friction is less of the, about the IRS going and hunting the money down. The problem is that it's sometimes it's just hard to give you the right amount of money. I just, you don't even know how much uh, you owe because you've got a thousand different conditions by which you calculate what effectively comes down to a single number. Right. In the end of the day, you spend hours and hours and hours to come out with a single number. And the com- that complexity is what sometimes will just simply get someone either not not paying, paying an incorrect amount, whether too much or too little. And a lot of times, people also just throw up their hands and actually are like, "Oh, I just don't want to. I just want to go to jail, pay more." Yeah. <laughs> so, will having more IRS agents actually collect more money for the government, or are you just burning our tax dollars, right? Which I'd rather just have back. Yeah. Right? Exactly. Um, and so they back, hire they a university money. to help them write a report in terms of what the revenue scenario would look like with 80 billion investment and 80,000 new headcount. 
And ultimately, the revenue comes in like six years down the road. And ultimately, in six years, none of those, nobody's around anymore. Everybody's forgotten yeah. it. And so nobody cares, right? And so ultimately, if it happens or doesn't, it's I take it's it back. A mute point. They're guaranteed going to be profitable. That ROI is going to be profitable, guaranteed, because the dollar, <laughs> the value of the dollar <laughs> will make them profitable in dollar we'll make units. Them profitable, yeah. Yeah, maybe maybe not in in this uh, stablecoin that you're building, right? So maybe that that's that's how they should measure their ROI. And uh, in that sense, I don't think you're going to be getting anywhere with that eighty billion for sure. Well, ultimately, I mean, it, you know, it, it, the the dollar, whilst on the one hand, it, from an inflation perspective, it's going down. However, compared to other currencies around the world, yeah, it's, going it's significantly higher, right? So it's going up. Yeah. Uh, but that's yeah, that largely because the interest rates are going up, right? So yeah, I'm just imagining how much. Other countries are just absolutely tanking in their purchasing power, considering that, you know, it's it's already hurting here in the U.S. and we're doing the best out of out of all of the other currencies. It, it just must be hitting the rest of the world hard. And I think people forget that when it hits the rest of the world hard, that's still a form of contagion, which will eventually come back and bite us in the butt. Like that's money they can't spend on U.S. goods and services. And we do need to export um, goods, services, products in order to stay comfortable. If we can't do that, then things start falling apart and going spiral. And it's double whammy, right? Because not only is the dollar going up in terms of making it more expensive, it's also oil is denominated in, in dollars. And a lot of these countries are dependent on oil and gas for energy supply. And so ultimately, they have to pay for that in dollar as well as the ability to export. You know, export might be easier, but how do they buy all the foods and the goods that they need yeah. in addition to that, right? So it has been so, reported that a lot of countries, especially those that are sanctioned, Russia, Iran, and whatnot, yeah. um, are are not using the dollar to be able to purchase oil. However, what's interesting, and I don't know the answer to this, and maybe, Stefan, you might have some insight of this, is while they're not using the dollars to purchase oil, I've heard they're even using cryptocurrency. The question being is, what are they denoting the value of oil in? Are they saying, hey, pay us X number of dollars worth of whatever asset? Or are they saying, pay us X number of yuan? Um, to buy uh, or Russian rubles to buy um, oil. That I think is the most key thing. It's not about what they're using to pay because you know the sanctions are basically sanctioning a payment method. Right? Yeah. You're not really sanctioning a currency because at the end of the day, you can use almost any payment method to denote payment of a specific currency, but it's the unit of account. And I think that's yeah. what we've, we've really lacked in the entire crypto industry since the days of Bitcoin is using a crypto as a unit of account. Yeah. Once, and I've, I've prophesized this for a while, I've posited that once we start using crypto as a unit of account, that's when whatever crypto that is, whether it's Bitcoin, Ether, whatnot, yeah. starts to stabilize. Yeah. Um, people don't know this, but actually oil, there are long-term contracts in oil that span decades where people will purchase X amount of oil over decades for a specific price. They're actually locking in a price for decades yeah. worth yeah. Of, of oil. What does that do to the, and they're doing that, of course, in dollars yeah. by and large over the past many years. So what does that do to the dollar? It stabilizes it because on both sides of the equation, both the buyer and the seller kind of want stability in that asset, right? Um, the buyer doesn't want the dollar to go up in value. The seller doesn't want it to go down in value. So they're motivated to stabilize that coin. How do you motivate to stabilize that coin? You also use it in the rest of your pipeline of business. So much like as a think of it from a small business point of view, let's make the analogy into a small business. So a small business um, was banked on the price of Bitcoin, right? Like the price of Bitcoin has to be one of the, the key drivers of your business. Well, 
if a lot of your expenses are denoted in, in Bitcoin, what are you going to want to do? You're going to want to earn in the in those units. You want to want to charge other people in those units because you know yep. that that's the unit that you're going to be spending in. Yep. Um, same thing as when you pay your staff, your employees. Yep. Once you know the unit that you can predict over time that what your, your expenses are going to be, you're going to want your income to be pegged in that unit as well. So this is what's happening with oil, which is creating the stability for the dollar relative to other currencies. Um, we really need to get crypto to that point of view um, where we denote things in it. And we started to slightly do that here at Edge. Um, very, very little bit. We, uh, for, we had a few contractors that we hired, you know, a few gigs, and we quoted yep. the gig in Bitcoin. That hey, this yep. amount of Bitcoin for that gig. That's a short-term yep. contract. Um, and some people we even gave Bitcoin options to. You know, a lot of people get options of the company. Uh, you, know, you join a startup, you get some options that vest over X number of years. Those options are never denoted in dollars. They're always yeah. in, denoted in shares. Well, for a couple of people in the company, early, early days, we said, hey, we're going to give you Bitcoin options. Just like stock, they vest over four years. Um, here's the exact amount of Bitcoin that you're going to receive. As long as you stay with the company, they continue to vest. And yeah, one out of the two people we offered to stayed through full vesting 10x value in their Bitcoin options. And I think that's what as an industry we need to start doing is creating these agreements um, that are in units of a crypto that help stabilize the, the price. And then that helps replace fiat. I love that, right? And I really want to see that more and more. I did that right at the beginning and throughout my a lot of my, whenever I had the chance, pay me in your native token. If you have a token, pay me in your token. Or pay me in Polkadot, pay me in Bitcoin Cash, pay me in whatever you want, whatever you can pay me in, Noddle tokens and um, Zuku token. I had I was paid in all these different tokens. And then right. when the but the funny thing to me was every time that token appreciated, there was a slight, always a slight contention that oh, yeah. I paid you so you much money, you should be working for free for me, right? Because in their mind, even though they paid me in that native token. They never saw the risk that I was taking. It could have also equally been gone a down. shit yeah. It could have gone down. And their mind was, oh, it went up. You made so much money. You could work an extra couple of months for free. It's like, hang on, that doesn't work like that, right? Because either way, you know, you, you paid that amount. Even if you converted it into a stable coin and paid me, I saved you that liquidity. So it's like that was yeah, always exactly. a double-edged sword. Well, you look at it from the same viewpoint of stocks. So you work for a company. Yeah. Right. And they give you a stock yeah. option. Yeah. So, you know, two years into a four year uh, vesting cycle, say the company just explodes and those, that stock's worth a lot of money. Do you, no one goes to their staff and go, oh, you should be working for me for free. You got all these yeah. stock options. They don't say that. And it's exactly the same thing with a coin. You don't go and yeah. tell your staff that. In a way, the coin is the stock of yeah. that project. And totally. while we didn't control Bitcoin, we offered it as Bitcoin because that is stock in the industry that we were trying to build and trying to promote. Yeah. Um, and it's much harder because we can't print Bitcoin out of thin air the way you can print stock. But, you know, from the viewpoint of the coin projects, they absolutely should do it that way. Now, maybe there should be a mix, right? Where it's not 100% coin. Like, hey, here's a dollar value. Even if we pay it to you in Polkadot, here's a dollar yeah. value that is consistent, you know, five, 10 grand a month, that kind of thing. And then here's your options, yeah, right? Which are pegged in the actual coin units. Yeah. And now you've got some stability, plus you've got the volatility, just like yeah. stock options versus your payroll. Yeah. That I think would be a great a great balance, and I think more companies should should exercise that, you know. And I think some do, especially those that are in coin projects that actually have an allocation. Um, and you hear about like the token vesting schedule. Yeah, I yeah. think they, they they generally do exercise that. Um, but now it comes now when you're outside of the company, 
you know, an entity that can't just print the coins or hasn't been able to print the coins for it to then be a part of the ecosystem of their expenses versus their income. That to me is kind of when we, we've hit that golden point of really adopting a crypto. Yeah, no, I, I definitely, I mean, ultimately, you know, there's a risk appetite, but also I think the advantage of skin in the game is really, you know, a, an element there that really matters. And, and I think, yeah. Um, we needed that at the beginning of Bitcoin, particularly helping scale and, and have more evangelists out there that had skin in the game and would evangelize and advocate for and educate for yeah. this, this, this currency. You know, um, halfway there, um, halfway there as far as skin in the game, as opposed to like quoting someone X amount of Bitcoin that you're going to pay them over some amount of years, um, yeah. and really just paying them in the currency, even if you in units of dollars can get you yep. almost halfway there. So we've been paying people in Bitcoin since day one, all right? Yep. No one's ever received dollars. No staff has ever received yep. dollars. And what we find is, since there is friction to convert into dollars, many people keep Bitcoin. Yep. And they end up having skin in the game. You know, even though we never quoted them a Bitcoin amount, they're like, oh, you know, this month, I don't really need to sell any of it because I feel like I have enough saved up from blah, 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 and I've got enough to pay my bills. I'll keep this paycheck worth of Bitcoin, all right? Okay. And then there you go. They now have skin in the game without realizing it. Whereas the friction to buy Bitcoin, if you're paying them in dollars, becomes higher, higher. than if you had friction to sell. So we'd like to give them friction on the sell side sell that side. motivates you know, skin in the game versus friction on the buy side, you know, which then is like, well, I'll, just, I'll, I'll, I'll leave myself without any skin in the game or with less skin in the game. So exactly. uh, I mean, that, that is a first step. Yeah. And I think that that's one angle that that I, I mean, Bitcoin to me really, you know, it's a store of value, right? It's really become, you know, the gold 2.0, right? And, and you can yeah, hold yeah. your value there. It, it addresses inflation, right? So it actually tackles yeah. that. But there's a lot of volatility associated with it. And that's where stable yeah. coins came in and provided a great user experience, in my view, because it provided a bit more stability, the convertibility into real world and into dollars. Um, and has now, by default, become the de facto, you know, um, currency reserve of crypto land, right? With $65 billion yeah. daily trading volume, Tether is really the de facto standard, um, more so than Bitcoin in terms of trading volume. Um, and so Absolutely, that yep. has really proven uh, to, to be an interesting hedge. How can, you know, and so... Anyway, that but it's still pegged yeah. to the U.S. dollar, which is fiat denominated, is. which is a whole different currency model, right? Yeah, it's it's the uh, concept of what exactly is the definition of stable, and admittedly, yeah. compared to Bitcoin, even in in its ten year cycle, its volatility, at least on a macro level, um, from all time highs to new lows, that kind of thing, is still above people's you know easy to stomach threshold, yeah. right? It's yeah. still hard to stomach a eighty percent drop, seventy percent drop. Um, in a, within months, you know, within just a few months, that's that's weeks. that's definitely outside of the norm. <laughs> Sometimes weeks. Uh, hopefully, it goes to at least months. You know, um, and so admittedly, yeah, the dollar going. You know, even if the dollar is going down in value at fifteen percent a year, which yep. the government would admit, but <laughs> depending on how you measure it, it's gone down fifteen percent. You know, in a year, is still at least more palatable than the volatility of seventy percent drops. You know, yeah. within, like you said, weeks or months. Definitely, definitely. Um, but I think like that, there's like the way to solve that really is to um, have some way of getting 
financial contracts and agreements denoted in units of some crypto. Yeah. Bitcoin's the most likely um, because it does have a bit more of the price stability. It's the gold 2.0, just like the dollar used to be just a, a payment method for gold. Yeah. Right. A lot of, you know, people call the dollar a currency. I say it's now, now it's a currency, a shitty one, but it's a currency. But yep. you know, before 1970, it was nothing more than a payment method for gold, right? It was a check to write yep. gold. Now it, yep. you called it dollars. You didn't call it like, oh, let me give you a, a bill of X grams of gold, call dollars, but it was pegged. And so it was just a payment method. Um, much like stable coins are not currencies, they're a payment method for a fiat currency. Um, but uh, uh, until we can get that that denoted, you know, in one of our coins type of experience, I think we'll continue to have some uh, some severe volatility. Um, and that is the inherent challenge. Hopefully yeah. a startup can figure that out. <laughs> Give people a motivating reason to denote financial contracts uh, in crypto. Remember, there was a time, and I don't know if it's still active, but on CoinGecko or on CoinMarketCap, you could actually denote everything in Bitcoin. And then oh, yeah. you could actually see how everything, all the other coins were performing against Bitcoin. I wonder yeah. how many no, people I think it's still, still available. actually use that feature. Is, that no, is it still I know available? I, hear, or? <clears throat> um, I don't know if it's still available. I, I've used it on an individual coin lo- uh, level on one of these like mobile apps that I use where it's like, yeah. okay, what's the price of Ether to, B- to BTC? Yeah. Um, and I feel like I hear that from yeah. a lot of coin projects that are kind of the anti-Bitcoin or yeah. trying to beat out Bitcoin some way. So a lot of like Ethereum maximalists will say, oh my yeah. God, we hit new all-time highs against Bitcoin. Yeah, yeah, right? yeah, yeah, yeah. That kind of thing. It's, it's, but Bitcoiners will never talk about that because obviously yeah. one Bitcoin is equal to one Bitcoin, as you hear, right? As the meme says, um, never changes in value. Um, yeah. But I, I think that is a, a piece of the puzzle. Like, even if all the other coins become payment methods for Bitcoin, where you know I'll send you one Bitcoin worth in BCH, Right, and this is the faster, cheaper uh, payment methodologies, and people hold BCH or Ethereum or whatnot to be able to do things with it. But even if the transaction that we agree on in the in the real world in the meat space, you know, we agree on a Bitcoin amount, okay. that would still be a huge step forward than us saying we agree on a dollar amount. Yeah, yeah. No, we would. I remember. I mean, I still do. We denominate a lot of the coins, you know, contracts. In I remember signing my first contract. It was three hundred ETH. And it was just, there was no negotiation. What's that calculate to? Dude, are you crypto or not? And then it's like, yeah, yeah. actually, you're right. You know, I can't say no I to that. It's like, okay, let's do it. Right? It's like, how about yeah. 250? You know, it's like, and then it's like, yeah. And so I remember that. And it was just such a different mindset. And the contracts, there was no other currency than 250 You know, so it was like an amazing, yeah, just interesting. Um, and then the thing is, once you have that, you yeah. realize that the thing that, that, takes it to that next step is once you now have a contract at 250 ETH, yeah. what interests you is, hey, can I pay for something in ETH? Can yeah, I get exactly. my rent? Can I get my all landlord? Of sudden, all of a sudden. Yeah. Yeah, totally, totally. yeah. I was like, hey, can I pay you one ETH per month? You know, it's yeah. like, you know, that kind of thing. Two ETH per month for, for rent. Because now it's like, okay, I know how much ETH I'm going to get and I know how much I'm going to spend. And now yeah. I feel, you know, much more at ease with the unit of account of ETH. Um, that's uh, miss me. You know, it would be nice if we get like, a small little village, yeah. <laughs> like, like yeah, yeah. Ethereum <laughs> village, where yeah, that is the unit of account, right? and and everyone denotes it beneath. And they could be billionaires to the outside world, or they could be just you know starving homeless to the outside world. But internally, that's their unit of account, and within that that village, which hopefully grows, comes stability of that asset. Yeah, I mean that's sort of. 
Oh, there's so many things to go down that path. But I mean, in essence, if you look at these different blockchains and the communities associated with those blockchains, they are this, you know, um, distributed village participants, yeah. right? Financial is, villages. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yep. And so ultimately, the Ethereum is a nation in itself because it has a whole mm -hmm. economy worth, I don't know, $200 billion or whatever the market cap is or $300 billion. And that is driving and thriving around that whole ecosystem and has a nation of yeah. participants or citizens, right? Mm -hmm. Yep. That are it's, building just, uh, around. It, it's, it's missing the Ethereum Foundation's uh, conference pegging the price of their tickets in ETH. You know, from <laughs> you know That's a year true. before they announce it to when the day uh, to the day of, and there have been some attempts at doing that, but then they realize like, oh, the price goes up, no one's buying the ticket, you know, like that kind of thing. It's a tough problem to solve. I don't know if it's gonna get solved any anytime soon. But you just need another angle to solving the price stability is that um, so much money gets into the ecosystem that it's just hard to move the needle, right? Like the yeah, market cap gets just it. so big. It gets so yeah. big that it then motivates us because the needle doesn't move. Then we actually do put contracts um, priced in the, the unit of ETH or BTC or whatnot. Um, and then that begets even more stability afterwards. But yeah, it might just be we need a whole bunch of market cap going in. Well, admittedly, if you look at Bitcoin relative to gold, we're not too far away. Um, like or, or an order of magnitude, right? Gold, it's an order of magnitude. One, it's about ten percent, right? I mean, gold is what one hundred yeah, ten billion, ten, ten trillion, or ten trillion. Ten trillion, yeah, yeah, ten trillion, and we're like at, at one less than one trillion. Less so it's an order of magnitude away. Now, yeah. are, are we an order of magnitude more volatile? Uh, I would say more. Definitely more, <laughs> more than definitely. order of magnitude. Yeah. More than order of magnitude. So the little question is: once Bitcoin hit, you know, eclipses. Well, actually, you could take silver. Um, you know, what's the volatility of silver? And I think Bitcoin has hit the market cap of silver, um, but I think we're still more volatile um, than silver. So, uh, and that's because unlike, um, unlike Bitcoin, silver has kind of a, a unit, uh, it has value in a unit of silver. Like a unit of silver has specific value that is constant, which is I can use silver for a very specific purpose in the real world. And I need this amount of silver for that purpose. Yeah. All right. Whether it be like, you know, I don't have to use, use gold for fillings, not silver, but you know, the, the, the physical use creates know, a certain amount of fixed value that's <laughs> that, that, that stabilizes that, that use case. And Bitcoin doesn't have that yet. Um, so still a ways. I think, um, one thing that 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 always you know it's like you you talk about ma order of magnitude volume right i think liquidity matters a lot right and uh yeah. in the industry the more liquidity is there the more velocity of money in crypto the more trading the more building and sharing and exchange of goods and services associated with cryptocurrencies is really what's going to drive more stability in there because the velocity just allows for more exchange and more stability by that thereby right yeah i think the liquidity is a key piece so yeah. um when you have liquidity you're just a harder ship to move on the ocean yeah. right you're a bigger ship it's just harder to move you um, and I would say Bitcoin has um, hard to measure the liquidity relative to something like silver and gold. Um, but the amount of liquidity increase in the system doesn't seem to have corresponded with an amount of stability increase. Um, that's the part that's a little bit surprising. Yeah. You know, we've, yeah, um, sure. We have so many. And I think 
I think the reason why what that one of the the reason why that might be true is that unlike a lot of other assets that have relatively centralized trading sources, Bitcoin has hundreds of places where you can trade it. Yeah. And so if you were to take all that liquidity and aggregate it into a single like NASDAQ, then that's a big ship that you can't move. Right now you can move the price on Bitcoin on a smaller exchange with very little with very little money. Um, then that price starts to become part of the global average. And then people say that the price is moving and then, you know, it takes a while for arbitragers to then kind of level it off. So you get some volatility due to this kind of small liquidity on a per exchange basis relative to the aggregate of all of the exchanges. Um, and I remember bringing up a similar issue when I was talking to, um, uh, I don't know if you know the Rootstock protocol, right? It's RSK, like smart contracts, yeah. DeFi on yeah. RSK, exactly. And um, one of the challenges they have, they've got great, amazing projects, uh, but each project in itself doesn't quite have enough of the liquidity to um, drive an adoption. And if they could pull it all together, then they'd be great. But instead, they've kind of yeah. it, more people have created more projects, whether it be a lending, borrowing project, a stablecoin. If like three or, or so stablecoins, but it, it, a fourth yeah. isn't going to help. You know, they're better off smashing all the stable coins into one and adding all of that liquidity. So I think the distributed nature of Bitcoin and crypto's liquidity is one of the challenges or it's contributing to the challenge of creating stability. Yeah, but I mean, it, it, it does then bring a competitive advantage or edge to it as well, right? So you have then three stable coins that are competing against each yeah. other. They're, they're optimizing, most likely they've open sourced their code base. So you can see the code that they're working on. You can find the yeah. bugs if one falls down and falls apart, then ultimately the learnings from that gets embedded in the other two that then provide a stronger stable coin on that front. I didn't know this that there a, were stable coins on Bitcoin though, but that's interesting. <laughs> yeah, on, on Rootstock, well, there, there's a stable coin on Bitcoin. The first one, USDT, although yeah, it's not yeah, sorry, Bitcoin, yeah, right? So there's the first one, on. but as far as on Rootstock, there's like three stable coins on there. And I think the, the thing you just mentioned, which is that, hey, it's, you know, but there's three different ones, different protocols. And if one goes down, you have a backup. This is at the root and heart of the trade-off of decentralization yeah. versus centralization, yeah. right? If you, if you think about it, any aspect of decentralization gives you that kind of fault tolerance and backup mechanism, but it introduces inefficiencies. Yeah. And that is the key part is, of inefficiency is distribution of power, distribution of resources, not so much power, but resources. Yeah. And when you distribute resources, you're not able to collaboratively collect all those resources to accomplish a single goal. Yeah. Right. You've got a bunch of great players in football, but you got to distribute them across 32 teams. What if you took the best players and put them on one team? Now you've got an all-star team. Yeah. Right. But they can't and, play against anybody. <laughs> yeah, you know, because they've already won. They've, yeah. they, they've won. There's no, one, there's no one to play against. They kick ass already in and of itself. Um, and, and so that is the, at the heart of the, the, the challenge. Do you want to have the fault tolerance or do you want to be able to have a level of adoption of at least something. And the nice thing, and the reason why Bitcoin got some adoption is it didn't have any competition when it first started. Its yeah. competitors were in a, a 10x worse class, which was yeah. fiat. Yeah. There was no competition. Yeah. Same thing with even USDT. So I remember talking to the Rootstock team saying, I got USDT is kind of, to many people's eyes, kind of shitty as it is, being fully yeah. centralized, very opaque. You know, is there really money behind it? It didn't have any competition. So it, it allowed it to achieve a very high level of adoption because there was nothing else to choose from. Once it achieved a high level of adoption, it created a demand for the entire ecosystem of stable coins. 
now adoption started to come in. Uh, not adoption, sorry, competition started to come in, and then we see USDC uh, approaching a lot of the levels and BUSD, and you know, hopefully die uh, yeah. approaching some of those levels. But if you start off with um, kind of equal playing field competition, but in a field that needs network effect, competition is great when you don't need the network effect of one being adopted. But if you need a network effect and you've got just a bunch of competition, then no one succeeds. No one succeeds. All right. No one succeeds. So if if you can use a product and you be the only one using the product and you could use it and enjoy it just as if a million people used it, you don't care, then that's a product that does not need network effect. Yeah. Right. And in that sense, that kind of a product can have a whole bunch of competitors. Yeah. You know? So, not- you know, that that's kind of the way the world works. And then some of the challenges of money, uh, the challenges of networks, um, and the challenges of liquidity. And, and I think that's in crypto, that's sort of combined everything, right? The competitive advantage you have, you've built a product, right? You've actually focused very much on user experience from the beginning, right? And, and the value associated with your product is based on, on the strength of the community that actually uses it. And you build out that network effect associated. You have no legal requirements. You have no legal framework, no legal moats or jurisdictional moats that have been created to protect your industry and make sure that you can be yeah. the only one serving this customer base. You've got other wallets out there. You've got to build, you've got to innovate, you've got to satisfy the requirements of the community. There may be some inertia, yeah. but you still have to build. You have to constantly innovate. You have to create a great user experience based on the feedback that the community gives you. And you've done that, right? right? You've started off with Bitcoin. You added Multicoin, and then you've launched exchanges. You now are in DeFi services, right? How's that journey been? And how do you see that evolving as your community demands shift, given that we're now come from another bull market into a bear market, right, you know, right. how do you see the next sort of wave going and, 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 and how does that impact the edge wallet? Got it. So I want to piecemeal what you said there um, first and, and correct one little piece yep. is that edge as a product um, doesn't necessarily have network effect or need network effect. Okay. Um, if you ask, I ask myself, if, if I was the only person in the world using edge, could I get all of the, and, and it didn't change. Yeah, Obviously, if, if there was yeah. only one person using Edge, we wouldn't have enough revenue to sustain the product, right? But yeah. say that you could somehow still use Edge and be the only person using it, it would still feel like the same product. Yeah. You wouldn't lose any value. Unlike a Facebook, if I was the only one using Facebook, it would be a shitty product. There would be should, yeah. no purpose to be a part of it. So network effect is one of those things where if your product needs it, it's hard to get. But then once yeah. you get it, it's hard to lose. Yeah. Um, Edge is not a product that needs a network effect. Everyone that, that uses it and enjoys it can use it, enjoy it as much as if there were a million more people, 2 million, 100 million more people using it, or if nobody was using it. So we don't have the laurels to write on, which a lot of companies that gain network effect write on that and get lazy. You know, they're like, oh, everyone's kind of lock in. It's, yeah, it's that, yeah. that lock in mentality. If you're locked in, it's, it's hard to leave. That's where your friends are. That's where the money is, blah, blah, blah. And then the product starts to suck, but you're still on it. Yeah. You know, um, think SMS. Yeah. <laughs> it's ubiquitous. It's freaking everywhere. The product yeah. kind of sucks, you know, but that's kind of the de facto standard and it has not improved. It's just yeah. as shitty as it was 10 years ago. Um, so Edge doesn't have that. And so we, because of that, we have to keep innovating. We have to keep delivering um, what people are looking for, what people are wanting because there's no lock-in. Yeah. You know, they can kind of switch if they wanted to. Um, so what have we found? Like, what is the, the, the weird 
bobbing and weaving that we have to do in this very, very volatile industry, not just price, but user demand um, is definitely assets are probably the single biggest ask and challenge of a multi-asset application. Everyone and their mother wants some asset you've never heard of that, you know, could become the next, you know, Dogecoin that moons out of nowhere, Shiba Inu, um, or it could just be the thing that no one's ever heard of and just drives down to zero. And if anything, running a company like Edge almost like almost feels like running a VC firm. Because if you think about it, every asset you choose to support is an investment of time, money and energy. You might not be giving money. You might not be sending money outside of the company. You actually might even be receiving it. You might receive a grant for supporting that. But that grant never covers the cost of 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 supporting the asset, especially not over time. Yeah. So really, you're deciding. You really put an investor hat on and saying, "What are we going to support? Because what do we think are um, valuable uh, products that contribute to the ecosystem? And what are we, what then should we put our time, money, and effort into? And that's I think drastically different than most other companies, um, especially in the general startup space and traditional startups that aren't in crypto, you don't have to put this weird investor hat on and like, hey, what are these different assets that we're going to support? And even to some degree, a lot of, in a way, centralized exchanges don't have to do it to the same degree either, because you don't have the challenge of client-side self-custody technology. Um, when you're a centralized exchange, you, you could spin up a, spin up a full node uh, on a computer dedicated to that. Sure, there's some costs in spilling up that node. But there isn't a lot of the technology hurdles in doing client-side transactions, signing uh, transactions, and the code that has to go in there, because that code is never identical to the full node. Right? Every coin needs a full node. Not every yeah. coin has a friendly client-side SDK that you can use to create a self-custody app, um, and and that you know, and and then to maintain that over time. So it is definitely a huge challenge, and that investor hat is the piece that's you know I've never claimed to be. You know, uh, a VC investor. I haven't worked in that space. So that's probably my, the biggest challenge that I've I've had is you know, figuring out what what do we support. And it's always a mix of what the community also demands, right? The community demands yeah. certain yeah. needs, um, but then your engineering team has to decide how, how hard is it, and your support team decide how hard is it to maintain it over time, and the questions are going to get, and the support tickets are going to get. But that that's one of the the, the journeys, and that I've realized like it is a a piece of the puzzle that you know is going to be a part of uh, what we do for quite some time. Yeah, I mean, I suppose that's the balance of a builder, right? I mean, you're you're balancing mm-hmm. the pros and cons of, of where do I... Fo- Asset allocation, right? I mean, that's really where, where you're actually always making decisions. And a VC does the same. Their asset is just money. And it's your money. asset is, is, is also money, but it's actually represented in people and time. Energy. Right? Yeah. Energy, right? People yeah. and time. It just yeah. happens to have a very VC-like... Um, every startup, even not in crypto, does exactly that asset allocation, yeah. people and yeah. time. The interesting thing about being in a, a crypto startup that supports multiple coins is you put on this kind of VC hat because you almost have to analyze a coin the way a VC would. Yeah. Right? Like, what's the opportunity? Um, what's the opportunity there? What will be the user demand for it? What will be the potential volume demand for it? Just like a VC would think about it as an investment. Um, the only difference is, once you make that decision, as opposed to cutting a check or sending some crypto, you're sending energy. You're sending energy. human energy into that. Yeah. That's that's the check you cut. But the uh, the analysis part feels a lot like VC analysis. Ironically, it really does. 
Interesting. Yeah. So, so from your, uh, what are the things that you look for in a new coin? Admittedly, like I say, or, this is what or new DeFi I should protocol. be doing. Yeah, that's what I, you know, thinking like a VC is what I should be doing. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not saying that that's what I actually do. Okay. Admittedly, I follow I follow my heart a lot of the times. Yeah. Um, big into the privacy coins. Um, big into the protocols that show like actual utility to. Yeah. Um, like end users from a viewpoint of financial services. So one of the big initiatives that Edge has over the next, uh, over this year, we're, we're launching stuff. We've already launched some stuff in DeFi. We're launching some, a big one um, that we announced beta for about a, oh, a week ago uh, and more stuff going forward over the next year is tight DeFi integration. Okay. Right? And so what does that exactly mean? Well, right now DeFi is like, you know, wallet connect on using trust or Edge and then a website yeah. And first, you have to connect the wallet. QR code, um, yeah. <laughs> you have to scan a QR code, which that right. isn't so bad. The problem is, I'm literally scanning a QR code like six times to do one transaction. Exactly. You know, one operation, one thing that I want to do, right, in one sitting. Like for example, take out a loan. Yeah. Taking out a loan will be connect the wallet. Um, for some reason, sign that I've connected the wallet. I'm like, I don't know what that that's for. No. You know, it's not an actual blockchain transaction. And then sign to deposit collateral, right. Actually, no, I take that back. Sign to approve the removal of a token for collateral, then sign to actually deposit the collateral, then sign to take out uh, to loan. take out a loan. And then possibly, you know, I might want to sell that that stable coin that I borrowed into a bank account, got a sign to do that. Um, rewind to the very beginning, I might have to convert some of whatever coin I have into the token that I can use to deposit as collateral. Think Bitcoin to wrap Bitcoin. I might have to do that conversion. So there's like a whole bunch of steps uh, in order to do that. Um, yeah. and that we're trying to simplify into just one, like how much do I want to borrow slide to confirm. Now yeah. that's a lot of energy on our side. That's a lot of what I call like, you know, VC investment. We're, we're investing a hefty amount into making that a very smooth process that feels like yeah. CFI. Now, yeah. where are we going to pour that energy? We're going to pour it into the protocols that we feel like are driving actual good value to the user base. And that's where we're putting our hat on. And I'm very excited from the viewpoint of, uh, like DeFi borrowing services, yep. um, because these services like absolutely perfectly replace CFI TradFi. Like there is like no reason to have the, the TradFi equivalent. Um, I think I mentioned this to you before the show, but I think where TradFi comes in is where yep. uh, you may be taking on under collateralized debt, where you want to have to trust the person. Who are they? How do yeah, I go yeah, after yeah. that person? What address do I go to with a lead pipe in case you don't pay the loan? <laughs> you know that kind of stuff. That's Classic TradFi stuff. I don't. I don't yeah. know that DeFi will ever be able to really compete, at least not very well with that. But for over collateralized loans, why go to CFI? These services are better in almost every way, shape, and form. But the user experience has been shitty. Um, but I think that's that's at the heart one of the the key um, the key feature, not features, but products that people are looking for and want to use. Just doesn't have a really good experience outside of CFI. So we're we're looking at that. And Aave so being one of the you, leaders in that space. How do you manage that then? Because, I mean, a lot of these, let's say, lending protocol or der derivative protocols or uh, all these other protocols have different applications on different blockchains, right? So mm -hmm. not all of them. So on Solana, they'll have their whole suite of different products. And then on Polkadot, on, on Cosmos, and then on Ethereum. So each one will have their own sort of uh, ecosystem. How do you sort of then decide, do you incorporate all of them? 
do you support all right, of right. them across each one yeah, or do you yeah. find one common denominator that sort of works across many of them and then add one or we just don't have a feature for that chain specifically yeah sometimes you just won't have a feature for that chain like the the borrowing that we're implementing right now yeah. um is going to roll out on eth and polygon yeah all right um yeah. solana doesn't have what we've seen as uh kind of an equivalent protocol with that kind of liquidity and more importantly it doesn't have a way to get into and out of that protocol easily. Yeah. So for example, when I go and borrow dollars on Aave, whether I use Ether, ETH or Polygon, I can get those dollar stable coins into the bank yeah. in one transaction. I don't have to yeah. bridge this and that. And the same thing, if I've got an asset like Bitcoin, which is the granddaddy of, of crypto, and I want to collateralize that, how do I get Bitcoin into a, a tokenized Bitcoin on Solana? Yeah. Notably harder than being able to use like a swap provider that gets it onto um, uh, e onto the Ether chain as wrapped Bitcoin or onto Matic. So yeah. I think one of the key pieces of our analysis to giving a good user experience is can the different chains and different protocols on those chains and the different coins you have to use, do they have good kind of outside um, ecosystem support? You know, the exchange, the swap exchange support, the fiat on and off ramp support. If they do, that becomes much more feasible for us. Otherwise, we're creating a, a, a poor user experience for the user. So that's part of the analysis. Um, and those just tend to come with some of the larger assets that have been used for a longer period of time in the larger protocols. Yeah, so liquidity does matter in your decision-making process as well, right? And so mm -hmm. and ultimately, yeah. the user user base. Yeah, anyway. so things like ETH and, and Matic, unfortunately, they're pretty liquid. Yeah. No, super cool, Paul. Um, super exciting times in front of us. And I think, you know, um, thanks for sharing all your insights. I know I've taken up a lot of your time, but um, always <laughs> really good me. learning. Appreciate it. Deep, deep, deep technology understandings and, and, and working through and having worked through all these different challenges. Um, where can people follow you? How can they follow you? I mean, obviously, everybody download the Edge wallet and test it out and check Thank it you. out. And, Let us know. Uh, yeah. Check it out, let us know. And then you yeah. can download that at edge.app. So simple domain, yeah. edge.app. You, you can find the app there, yeah. links yeah. to the Play Store, um, uh, the App Store, and also direct download for those of you that don't want to have Google Play on your phone or Android. You can direct download from the, the website as well. And you can find our Twitter handle and you can find me, um, Paulinator with two L's, P-A-U-L-L-I, Paulinator on Twitter. I tweet on occasion. Once in, while, once in a while I get on a rant, but usually just kind of lurking and seeing what people are saying, what the industry is up to. Um, but definitely um, look us up. We, all, we also do, uh, for any that happen to be in San Diego, imagine getting in-person support for using Edge. We actually offer that just for a little bit per week, two hours, two hours a week on Thursday mornings. There's actually a beautiful coffee shop with a, with a nice little uh, patio deck downstairs from our office. And so Tuesdays, I'm sorry, Thursdays, 9.30 to 11.30, you can actually come if you have any questions about crypto, questions about Edge, need a little bit of hand-holding, we're there for you. Not everybody can take a part of that, but a few people definitely have. Um, and uh, also give us a call. We uh, answer the phones, believe it or not. Not too many crypto companies do, at least without, without charging you, um, but we do. So uh, let us know what you guys think. Love to hear feedback. Check it out, yeah. let us know. And I think also you're you're always you always go to events. You go, you, you pretty regularly go to events, and you're always very approachable. That's the right way. I, I I remember you always being very approachable at events. So, what's the next event you're planning to go to? Um, I 
not sure if I'm booked yet, but I will be at Mainnet or at least in ancillary in Mainnet. I've got a few meetings. I'm not sure if I'm actually going to go into the conference itself, no. uh, but I have a few ancillary meetings in and around Mainnet. But for sure, I will be at the Litecoin Summit. So I'll be speaking at the Litecoin Summit in October. So I uh, hope to see any of you listeners out there. Feel free. Um, as Stefan said, I'm approachable. So feel free to say hi. Um, I will yeah. possibly be wearing an Ed shirt. Hopefully just recognize <laughs> me. Um, you know, so yeah, uh, definitely come say hi. And one thing I forgot to ask you, which is asking, I like asking people just something out of the blue and slightly random. Oh. It's like, what is your favorite book or what book have you read recently that uh, really stood out for you or, or, or maybe a movie that you went to see or a documentary you've seen? I haven't read a lot of books as of late, but a few stand out from uh, a while back. Um, yeah. Two of my favorites were uh, Born to Run. Um, okay. Yeah, yeah. Book about, you know, a bunch of... I think it was Mexican barefoot runners yeah. and whatnot. Yeah. And believe it or not, there's a strong tie to a lot of my philosophy in um, in crypto yeah. to that. But that's for another podcast. We'll have to do another time or yeah. over a beer one day when I see you next. Um, born to run, yeah. Born to run, was, one of my absolute favorites. That was sort of where we talked about barefoot running, right? That was when the whole Vibram shoes sort of came oh, in. Oh, yeah. And I, I was sold. I wore only minimalist shoes. I even have minimalist dress shoes. Oh, yeah. You know, that they have, you know, dress shoes have like that, that heel, the wood heel. Yeah, My yeah. shoes have the wood heel, but believe it or not, it's actually carved out. So your, your heel goes all the way near to the bottom. So it has a false heel. And so that way it's, it's like a flat zero, a zero drop. Most people have uh, the opposite. Shoe. So they have the heels that really oh, huge, them. giant yeah. cushiony <laughs> things. They don't realize that it actually injures them. Um, but Born to Run was my first foray into don't trust the big establishment. Yeah. All right. Like they're lying to you. They're hurting you, such as with these shoes that you think are very, very comfortable. Yeah. And then same thing got me into Bitcoin crypto and then as well, delivering happiness. And I think that's, um, it's a book by, uh, Tony Shea, original founder or yeah. CEO of Zappos, which was acquired yeah. by Amazon. And that's a lot of what inspired our drive to community and, and customer support. Um, he was huge on customer support. Um, at yeah, Zappos. Yeah. My, I had three friends, including a cousin that used to work at Zappos. And um, one of them worked in customer support, took phone calls. Yeah. And what they did was they would literally have competitions to see who could talk to customers the longest. And they'd have, the, <laughs> they'd have like department meetings where they'd play back this call from someone who just talked to a customer about their Europe trip and just really got to know them um, in the process of like returning mm -hmm. a jacket. And yeah. it's about connecting with the community. And obviously, I know that that was an efficient thing to do. We don't necessarily do that here. But that's the reason why we have phone support, why we have on-site support, why we do a lot of community events. I invite you, by the way, if anyone's listening and you're working on a crypto project, reach out to me. Um, about one-third of our office space is actually uh, a little mini auditorium. can hold about 70, 80 people. And we have you know, like four different meetup groups come and use our space here in San Diego um, just for general events. And it's it's free. We don't We don't charge for it. And so that's another piece of us just connecting with the community. And so community. delivering happiness was a big inspiration in that connecting with your users, connecting with the community, connecting with the customers and supporting them. And so I invite people to reach out, let us know if you uh, want to speak at one of the meetups or want to host an event and it's open to you as well, Stefan. So let us know when you're in San Diego and uh, love to have you. I used to be down there quite a lot. So I might be down there again and uh, you let us know. looking you up and uh, checking cool. out on Thursday. I'll come in and see as well for coffee. Um, oh, yeah, for well sure. Yeah, get get the little support up. with your edge app. Yeah. <laughs> cool. Yeah, well, thanks. Thank you. Thank you, Paul. Thanks for your time. Everybody, super excited. If you're not after this 
cold, then you know, I don't know what. You know, let's uh, get uh, let's get, get into it. Yeah, exactly. Cool. Thank you. Thanks, everyone. This was Stefan Roost and Paul Pewey. You can follow Paul on Twitter at Paulinator, P-A-U-L-L-I-N-A-T-O-R. And you can find the Edge wallet at edge.app. That's E-D-G-E dot app. You can also follow Stefan on Twitter at sroost99. That's S-R-U-S-T double nine. And you can find the Super Excited with Stefan Roost podcast on all major podcast platforms and on YouTube on the Stefan Roost channel. Thank you for listening. Thank you for listening.